welcome back to another episode of Oregon's Tissues and Other Issues. We've been here before. Technology sucks. <laughs> and so we're interviewing Olivia and we're super excited about it. I swear we're excited. We are excited. <laughs> I'm your co-host, Carissa. I'm Savani. Carissa, would you like to introduce Olivia for us? So Olivia is someone who I met through Instagram as an EDS buddy, <laughs> and we became good friends because we both had more of the systemic issues from EDS than the just the joint issues. Um, so we both get injured, but we had a lot more systemic issues. Specifically, Olivia recently has been dealing with her kidney issues, which is what she's going to be talking about today and where the title of this episode comes from. Yep. We were gonna release this episode for um, like the March Kidney Awareness Month. Um, unfortunately, we had some technical difficulties that we realized a little too late. So, um, this is going up a little bit later, but we still hope that you guys totally enjoy this episode. Olivia is someone that I met recently, and she is a lot of fun to talk to, so I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Hey, Olivia. Hey. <laughs> For the second like... time. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to introduce yourself? Yep, so I'm Olivia. Um, I'm currently a nursing student at the University of Toledo. Um, I, like Carissa said, I do have EDS, um, hypermobility, endometriosis, I have postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, neurocardiogenic syncope, um, epilepsy, and I don't know what you would say for my kidneys, um, undiagnosed mystery <laughs> combo, um, <laughs> kidney issues, um, and then I think that's it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have GI issues too, but it's just hypersensitivity, so I do have a feeding tube and a port. Dang. Wow. Kudos to you for remembering the whole list. I'm sorry that you have to deal with all of that, though. <laughs> it's like a speech. Sometimes I'll forget, like, little things. Like, my epilepsy doesn't even bother me that much, so I'll forget epilepsy. Sometimes I'm like, oh, shoot, I do have epilepsy. I forgot about that one. <laughs> Honestly, it's kind of me, but all right. <laughs> okay, so would you like to tell us your story so far? I know that you gave us a little synopsis, but maybe a little more in-depth for us. So um, my, I've always had, always had urinary issues since I was probably about like 13, kind of going through puberty. Um, I had really bad frequency. Um, I would have to push to get my urine out, um, really bad urinary retention. I would have like 11 UTIs a year, but which I'll actually go into later about um, something nephrology found related to that. But um, I started having kidney infections related to the UTIs when I was like in high school, so probably 16, 17. Um, the infection would spread to my kidneys because I don't have symptoms of my UTI until I wake up in the middle of the night, like shivering with like a 102 fever. Um, I don't have burning when I pee. I don't have any normal UTI symptoms. So we don't usually catch the infection until it's later in its cycle and it's already spread to my kidneys. Um, and then when I was 
I believe I was 20 when I got diagnosed with hydronephrosis, um, which was kind of weird, very random. Um, it doesn't usually happen at that age usually, but they said it could have just been something I had like my whole life and nobody caught it. Um, but I had a stent placed um, in my right ureter going into my kidney to open that up and drain the urine, which was awful experience. Zero out of 10 recommend. <laughs> awful. Um, probably up there with the feeding tube placement, but it was pretty bad. Um, and then I got it removed, and ever since I got the stent removed, I've had really bad kidney pain, like lower flank pain, um, off and on, like passing out from the pain, sharp pains, like sometimes I can't stand up, um, and still urinary issues, but they're not as bad because I am on supplements right now, like cranberry, all different supplements for urinary. Um, and then I just got sent to a nephrologist because of the pain and blood in my urine and protein and everything. Um, but then the nephrologist was like, I don't know why you're here. <laughs> um, we can't really do anything. Um, we think it could be damaged from the, uh, from the stent or the hydronephrosis, but we can't do anything for you. So maybe you should just go back and see urology. And so I talked to urology and I was like, hey, uh, nephrology kicked me out. And urology was like, well, um, we can't really do anything for you either because we think it's a kidney problem. So uh, right now I am not receiving any treatment currently for the kidney stuff. I was told to just take pain pills, um, <laughs> which also isn't good long-term analgesics for um, nephrology-related issues. Um, <laughs> But, you know, so that's where I'm at right now. Um, but I did find out that through the nephrologist that um, we talked a lot about dipsticks and UAs and, like, the differences between what the ER does and what, like, nephrologists and urologists do. And he said that technically, even though it had come back with, like, bacteria or something that he was explaining that it doesn't necessarily mean that I had a UTI so they could have just been treating me for a UTI when I didn't have one and they didn't have like actual like they didn't grow the bacteria in a culture it just came back positive and so they like treated me and they could have been over treating me so the urologists and the nephrologists are disagreeing a lot right now basically that's also, not reassuring yeah, also, if this isn't the epitome of, like, the medical hot potato that Carissa and I talk about <laughs> all the time. Yep. Not our problem! Pass you off. But also not our problem, so we'll pass you off to someone else, or just leave you hanging. Yep. Nobody likes to be the hot potato. No. Oh. No. And I was like, you guys need to just collaborate. Like, I need to give you my urologist number, and then you guys talk, because... I literally messaged um, urology and they were like, well, I mean, you can see like a pain management doctor. I'm like, I am not going through that again. I'm sorry. Like, I don't mean to like not be a fan of pain, pain management, but like I've been down that route before and it's just, I'm very well versed in it already. So I feel like it just wouldn't be beneficial. Yeah, I think pain management can be super helpful but it just depends on what it's for and if you already know have been through it and know the techniques right it's beneficial and being right. like, like, I I like, like 
there needs to be a way for it to be easier for doctors to talk to each other. Yeah. <laughs> like, when you have multi-systemic issues, it's like, okay, this person's saying this thing's low because of this, but it could also be this and this, and those are three different specialties. I was trying to explain that to my boyfriend recently. Yeah. He's like, well, who do you need to talk to about, like, your glucose being low and your sodium being low and your albumin being low? And I'm like, like, everyone, because it could be endocrinology, it could be GI, it could be autoimmune. <laughs> yeah. It's, I don't know. I mean, given they are in, like, two different cities, like, my urologist is in Dayton and my nephrologist is here near my university in Toledo, um, but I still wish that they would, like, even just call each other, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, of phone call will be the same if you're like in the same city in two different buildings or in two different cities or even two different states right like it's still just in a, a world in a world where everything is running on zoom right you can make a phone call right right like how thank you we're doing everything virtually anyway right. and your people aren't even on different time zones or anything I know, yeah. I mean, there's cities away, but that's only two hours. Like, Dayton versus Toledo isn't insane. It's not like a different state or anything. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Doctors, man. <laughs> we love them, but come on. <laughs> we we absolutely love them. Yeah. We'd like I'm to somebody. be them. <laughs> I, yeah, we don't want to need them. And I think they wish there were easier ways to communicate with each other sometimes, too. So I'm like, can we just make that happen? Right. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. All right. Are we ready to jump into the interview questions? Yep. Okay. So the first question we have for you is, can you explain what your first symptoms of EDS were and what led to your diagnosis? Um, so my first symptoms, my first major symptom was extreme joint pain. Um, I used to explain it when I was like around 15 that it felt like someone was taking a knife and just like cutting into my skin because my skin would hurt too. My joints would hurt. Like it just felt like someone was sticking a knife through my skin into my joint. Um, and every time I would tell a doctor that, they'd just be like, oh, she just is manifesting the pain. That was something I was always told was that I was manifesting that pain. And I did go pain through like a year of pain management therapy when I was 16 years old at Cincinnati Children's. And um, I was, I didn't have a diagnosis of EDS at that time. It was like the beginning of when I had just turned 16. And um, I, they were like, oh, you're just like, you're thinking too much about pain. So you're manifesting that pain. And it's just like the signals in your brain or it was just this whole long like spiel about how I was just imagining the pain. Um, so I did biofeedback. Um, I had to do sessions where I would like imagine like warmth going through from my top of my head to my toes um, to try and get rid of the pain. But I think they don't realize that sometimes you just can't get rid of the pain. Like, it's kind of like if you just had surgery or something, like, 
you can't just like breathe away that pain like it's still gonna be there and you can breathe as much as you can to like help calm yourself but the pain is still definitely there like it's definitely a physical issue <laughs> like those techniques can be helpful and they can help right. minimize your pain but i the whole concept that people would manifest their own pain i'm always like why why yeah and right. this whole thing about people faking being sick and i just i I saw a quote one time and it's like, no, 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 you have this backwards. We're faking being well, not Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Literally. I, that whole concept of like, you're bothered by your symptoms, so it must be in your head, is one that just makes me want to scream. Because I remember yep. filling out a chart sort of similarly and they asked me questions like, are you bothered by your nausea? And since it was impacting my ability to eat, I said, yes, I am bothered by my nausea. And then he looked at this form and he said, well, since your symptoms are really bothering you, I think it's a psychosomatic disorder. And I was like, what? Oh, God. Here I was thinking I was filling out like a quality of life form so we would know like what yeah. we to improve. And it turns out he was just doing it to tell me that it was all in my head and I just needed to not be bothered by it and then I'd be cured. Oh, God. I feel like- I think it's like- Oh, go ahead. I feel like, okay, so healthcare in this country, in the US, is super freaking expensive. Like, let's make that very clear. <laughs> and I feel like if people are choosing to go to a doctor, especially a doctor of like a specialty, there's something wrong that they need help with. Even if they visit an ER, like there's something wrong that they need help with. There are people out there who are just like, or there'll be doctors out there who will be like, oh, they're just here because they're seeking attention. They're seeking attention for something. Like they, they right. need help. There is some level of discomfort or weirdness or pain or something else in their life that is bothering them enough impending to pay doom. exactly i like that, that term <laughs> the impending doom yeah yeah that they feel like they need to be here and pay thousands of dollars to be here like get your ish together right and the, yeah i i think a lot of the times there is something going on that's underlying it. And maybe people do have more stress around that and then that's compounding it and making it worse and having it have more of an impact on their life. But still the best way to manage that is to figure out what the underlying thing is and treat it. People don't go to the doctor for fun. As much as my, some of my doctors are great, and it's entertaining to have conversations with them. If I never had to see them again in a medical setting, I would be thrilled. Yep. <laughs> Sorry, we feel very strongly about this if you can't tell. <laughs> I know even it's in your head, just I Yeah. No. Anyway, go I, on, Olivia. <laughs> um working like in the medical field, like from being like a nurse's assistant to being a nursing student in clinicals, 
um, you get to see like the gray sides of medicine, but also you get to see the bad sides of medicine and stuff that you're like, wow, this actually happens. Like things that like literally are in Grey's Anatomy, like sometimes happen at the hospital I do clinicals at. Like um, you'll see patients who have pain from something when it, at a hospital I used to work at. And, you know, sometimes they'll be treated awful. Like there'll be like nurses like talking bad about them at the nurse's station or you know they'll refuse to help them to the bathroom because they think they're asking for too much help like you're like wow this actually happens like working not laying in bed as a patient but when you're like working as a nurse or a nurse's assistant or a student you're like okay wow like patients really do get treated like this and that's awful and i wish that could change but we can only cross our fingers and hope that right. medical will improve. Right. Yeah, As we a medical ourselves, we can be the one that does believe our patients when we get to the point where we're seeing patients. And I, I remember that too. In high school, I did a program where we got to shadow medical professionals, and I was shadowing one person. And they were talking about how oh, oftentimes when a young person comes in with low back pain, you do some tests where you like lift up their legs and drop them. And if they don't like immediately fall, that means they're faking the weakness and it's all just actually a conversion disorder. And I w and she told me this and I'm like, breaths, deep breaths, don't, don't yell at this person. Like I have to be professional. Yeah. And I remember just asking this person and I said, well, have you ever had a patient come in with a diagnosis of conversion disorder and it turned out it was something else? And then she told me this story about one time and I was like, okay, conversation done. And I remember going and talking to my teacher after that and I'm like, so this happened in case it comes up. I think I handled it well. And I remember him trying to comfort me sort of and saying, well, you know, it's probably just your experience versus hers. And I was like, oh no, now we're going to go into it. And so I went off about how conversion disorder used to be in the diagnostic manual and it was diagnostic and statistical manual the dsm and it was required you to have a significant trauma that preceded it but then they took out the need for the trauma so now it's basically if someone decides that you had a trauma that you could be totally unaware of they can dismiss your symptoms as conversion disorder because it's a diagnostic diagnosis of exclusion so there's no positive criteria so it's just if they can't figure it out it can be all in your head yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> so I remember, like, I haven't, I've been working as a medical scribe for a couple of years now, um, two years, I think. Um, and I remember the first time I saw someone being diagnosed with conversion disorder by a doctor. Like, I remember having to write that in their chart. And it was just like, you know, we, when you're a medical scribe, you have to take down everything, including like a differential diagnosis. And I remember like writing out the differential and like really putting like a lot of effort into this differential. Like, could it be this? Could it be that? Could it be this? Could it be that? And then I remember the doctor being like, okay, I'm going to dictate something to you and I just need you to write it down. And I remember him being like, I think this is likely conversion disorder. And I remember going, hold on what? And normally we don't interrupt doctors when they're dictating something because you need all of your concentration to go into like listening and typing. But I remember distinctly, and that was the one and only time I've ever interrupted a doctor being like, stop, how did you come to this diagnosis? And he like, he couldn't give me a good answer. And I remember just being like, 
you can't give me a good answer, but somehow you want this to go into a chart that could be looked at by a lawyer that you could be sued for. Like, yeah, they and all you have to come up with because I is because I said so. Thank you. They tried to tell me I had conversion disorder at one point, and I remember my mom getting upset because she's like, you've said this is a diagnosis of exclusion, but you have not excluded everything. Like, you've hardly run any tests. So how can you have excluded every other possible cause? I think and doctors that kind diagnosis of... was wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you ended up having a lot of issues. <laughs> a lot of very real issues. Yeah. I just think doctors kind of have... Um, I mean, obviously, some doctors are great and don't have this problem, but I've come across a lot of doctors who kind of have a big ego, I guess you would say, and um, they don't like when they can't look at a patient and say, oh, you have acid reflux, or, oh, you have epilepsy. Like, it's not like a basic, like, you have to actually think outside of the box, and they don't like when they feel like they don't know. And so I think they just say, oh, well, it must not be real if I can't figure it out. <laughs> but there are doctors who do really like the cases where it makes them really think. Yeah. And I am so mm -hmm. grateful for those doctors, and I love those doctors. And I do mm -hmm. wonder if part of the doctor, some doctors not wanting to admit that they don't know, stems from, one, the training, and two, there is a weird societal expectation that doctors will know everything and will be able to oh, fix it. And that contributes to then some doctors feeling like they can't say, I don't know, because the expectation from mm -hmm. society is that they should know and they should be able to fix it. And so I think this is like, it's a problem that needs to be changed at multiple levels. Like, I think it needs to be addressed in the training. It needs to be addressed in society as a whole, and it needs to be addressed on an individual level. Because I don't think it's something that just like happens. And I don't think it's that like, doctors inherently have big egos like I don't think that's it I think it's they feel like they can't admit when they're wrong right because society has told them that they aren't allowed to be wrong yeah that and I've told was, doctors uh, before I'm like please like I'm okay if they say I don't know I recently had a doctor tell yeah. me that he likes seeing me <laughs> because it makes him think and <laughs> he learns something and, it's, and he and he was going to have a resident come, but then he's like, you know what, we're kind of behind, and by the time I explain her story, we will be way behind, so, like, we just won't for today, and I was like, okay, and then at the end, we were talking, and I'm like, oh, yeah, by the way, my lips have been turning blue, too, but sometimes only in splotchy spots, and he just started laughing, and he's like, I don't know what to do with that, but you always keep things interesting. He's like, so I like seeing you because you're really interesting. He's like, which is probably not what you want to hear as a patient because you just want to mm -hmm. be on a stable treatment that's working. It's like, yes. But since it, I'm, I'm sort of on a stable treatment right now. We're stable-ish. But I would rather have doctors that are thinking about it because if they're interested, then they're thinking about it. It's sort of like percolating in the back of their mind. And sometimes that's when you come up with your best ideas. Yeah. So right. I told him I'm glad he's at least thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. It's all about the doctor, too. I mean, I've had some doctors who, like, when I was trying to find, well, I wasn't trying to find, but when we were searching for an answer for the passing out and all of the um, 
orthostatic intolerance issues. Um, I had so many doctors who were just like, well, I don't know. I mean, you're small, like you're probably just dehydrated, like you're a smaller built person. So I was like, okay, well, also I'm smaller built because I can't eat, but like, whatever, <laughs> we'll ignore that for now. But um, I met one doctor when I was in my, like, when I was about to turn 17. And like, he literally, my mom forced me to go to him. I did not want to go. I was like, he's just going to say the same things. Like I'm manifesting passing out, which how does that happen? But whatever. Um, and I was like, I do not want to go. I was in such a bad mood. I like probably had an attitude. Like I was probably such a bitch to him, but whatever. And he was like, he literally just wrote everything down. And at the end he was like, oh, so you have POTS. And I was like, what? And he's like, oh, you have postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Um, we're going to do a tilt table test tomorrow. Um, yeah, just come in for that. But we're going to start you on like fluidrocortisone in the morning, um, thermotabs, and then some mag oxide and, you know, stay hydrated and you'll be good. And I was like, what? <laughs> Wait, an actual diagnosis? Hold on. Yeah, like what? <laughs> I love when doctors do that though. And you're like, yes thank you for listening right i've had that happen mm -hmm. happen a couple times and you're like i saw one gi doctor and we walked in and it was when we were in the process of seeing lots of different doctors and the first person we saw was very dismissive and told me it was obviously all in my head because my gait was weird mm -hmm. um so we went and saw this gi doctor we sat down and they looked at me and the first thing they said is, so you obviously have a problem. Like, look at how much gas is in your colon on this x-ray. And I was like, <laughs> and my mom and I were like, wait, I know this, but you know this? And they're like, yes, look look at how long it took your colon to empty and look at how everything's still on the right side of your colon. And we're like, what? And then this guy wanted was like, you have serious internal connective tissue weakness. And, and he's looking at us like, why aren't you more surprised and like, scared by this and we're like because I knew this but I'm surprised that you knew this <laughs> and you're acknowledging this um but that was a process and then I remember seeing one other doctor who the whole appointment was super stressful because it was definitely one of those appointments where like everything was on the line and the doctor left to go think for 20 minutes in the middle of the appointment my mom and I were like taking BuzzFeed quizzes to stay calm I remember getting in. a text during this time, and I just remember getting this panicked text from Chris of being like, oh my god, you locked out for 20 minutes, and I was just like, um, are you okay? Because I knew that she was going to see this doctor, but I was just like, um, is everything okay? And she was just like, I'm taking BuzzFeed quizzes because I'm stressed. But then he came back, he sits down, puts his hands together, and goes, so you obviously need IVIG. And my mom never like thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And at the end of the appointment, I remember him being like, so is there anything else I can do for you? And we're like, can you just write that in my chart? <laughs> He's like, you traveled yeah. all the way here to have me write that in your chart? Yes. Thank you. Yeah, I think there's, so this is the last point I'm going to make before I try and transition us to the next question. But, um, I think like it also like comes down to there's good doctors and there's like dismissive doctors. I'm I hate using the word bad because it feels like I'm stuffing a lot of qualities into one tiny word. 
So I'll say dismissive instead. There's like dismissive doctors and then there's like good doctors who are willing to listen. Um, but I also think it's part of like, I'm currently taking like a nonprofits class and we talk about this in the nonprofits class a lot, which is like the worthy versus the unworthy. So there's like the, for the nonprofits, there's like the worthy poor versus the unworthy poor, like where you decide to put your money. You, most people will try and think of it as a worthy cause or an unworthy cause. So they'll like try and put money towards the worthy poor versus the unworthy poor. It's the same thing I feel like with medicine where there's like the worthy patients that like are having trouble that require attention versus the unworthy. And that's such a wrong way to think about it, I think. And it goes back to like the last like 10 minutes of what we've been talking about. Like everyone needs help, but it like, it feels wrong for doctors in general to try and put people into categories of being like, they're worthy of our attention or they're not worthy of our attention. And it just makes me so mad. I would agree. Because the whole point of medicine, right, is supposed to be that everyone deserves care and everyone deserves health care, regardless of any other factors in your life and any choices that you've made. Everybody deserves health care. So some you, of my favorite providers are like that. And I'm like, I'm, I thank you so much for being a good role model. Yes, we love good role models. We love good doctors. And yeah. There are really, really good doctors out there, and I am so grateful for them. And truthfully, the good doctors are the reason that I'm able to function and able to be in school right now. So I am forever grateful for all the doctors on my team that have helped me get to this point. They are out there. Like, yes. I used to be, I used to hate doctors. I was like, they all suck. <laughs> they all are awful people. But, I mean, also, you also have to think, like, they're human, too. And, like, med school kind of trains you to, like um, Savani said, that it kind of trains you to, if you don't know, you're a bad doctor. Like, if you don't know, you're bad at your job. Like, that's, I think, kind of why they act that way. But, I mean, there are great doctors out there, obviously. I found one when I was least expecting it, and I had a little toot when I was younger, but I mean, you find it when you least expect it, and they, they are out there. <laughs> they definitely are. So to pull us back to our interview of you, <laughs> um, <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about, like, your diagnostic journey and when you realized that, like, all of these separate diagnoses might be more interconnected and how that complicated the diagnostic process in terms of getting your specialist to communicate and you having to be the one that's sort of the go-between between these specialists as you were getting these diagnoses and all that and trying to figure out how they were related even though they were in different systems. Yeah, so um, when I was first diagnosed with EDS, I got diagnosed by a rheumatologist and all I was told at the time was, oh, like, you have EDS, you have hypermobility, so it's not a big deal. Like, your joints, you're just going to be flexible. We did the whole, you know, thumb to the wrist, and he was like, yeah, you're just going to be extra flexible. Um, you're probably going to have some joint problems, um, but that's about it. You know, you only have organ issues or other multisystemic issues if you have vascular, which now, obviously, we've kind of gotten more research, thankfully, where you know that 
you don't just have multi-systemic issues with vascular type. You can have it with all types of EDS, but that's what I was told when I first got diagnosed, but that was years and years ago. Um, so I first, obviously I did have GI issues for the longest time and, you know, no doctors were really figuring that out. I was like 90 pounds when I was younger, um, super underweight. I was barely eating, could only tolerate certain things. And at the time I was like, I don't know what this relates to. I didn't know anything about POTS or EDS. I just listened to what my doctors told me because I was a teenager. My mom is in marketing, so she doesn't know anything about medicine and we don't have a medical family. So we just listened to my specialists at the time and what they were saying. And we were like, oh, well, EDS is just joints. So it can't be related to that. But when I got interested in medicine more as I got older, I was like, you know, screw this. I'm gonna do my own research and figure all of this out. And um, I did join a couple support groups and I talked to girls with EDS and they had literally the same issues as me. Like, oh, I can't eat certain foods or I get bloated, I'm super distended, I'm cramping, I have don't have regular bowel movements. Go ahead, Chris. <laughs> have you guys ever heard of the guy, Doug Lindsay? Mm -mm. So he was, uh, he was a patient and he started developing these issues that left him bed bound and bedridden and so he had to drop out of college but he'd seen other people in his family develop this thing that he was starting to develop and then die from it but nobody could ever figure out what it was so he he bought all the medical textbooks and just read them until he figured out what he thought it was and then he kept reading them and figured out what surgery he could do to fix it pioneered a surgery found a surgeon convinced them to do it and cured himself and I'm like Oh, you have told me about this. I think you've texted me this story. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I sent you that article. But um, anyway, it's just, I feel like a lot of rare or chronic illness patients do that to some extent, not to that level necessarily where you create yeah. a surgery, but <laughs> mm -hmm. doing research on your conditions to try and figure out what treatment or management might work for you so that you can bring it up to your providers and discuss with them and be a part of that partnership in your care and really be more of an equal partner in your care because the more educated you are on your conditions, the more able you are to participate in the planning of your treatment. Yeah, no, that's that's very true. I mean, when um, I transferred doctors, I always say this, my POTS doctor handled my POTS and my epilepsy, he left me. <laughs> he left to go to a different hospital, but I was so upset. But so I had to transfer um, autonomic dysfunction specialist. So I saw a cardiologist and I was looking into infusion therapy because my meds just weren't enough on them their own to help me with like exercising and being on my feet all the time. So I looked into infusion therapy and I was like, okay, this seems worth it. So I went to my appointment and I was like, so I want to do infusion therapy, um, added on to my fludro and my mag oxide and all my other drugs. And then maybe if we started a beta blocker as well, that could also help. And he was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> we can do infusion therapy. I was like, I think it's just, I mean, I ended up needing a port, but I honestly love my port. I love being able to have infusions because they're the one treatment that I think has helped the absolute most. And no one even had brought that up to me. I found it on the internet and from other patients who said they went on it. So it's kind of, you also have to work with your doctors, but I think also some patients have a hard time with that because they may not have medical background or 
like I went into nursing, so I know a little bit more, but not everyone has that background knowledge that they can talk to their doctors in that medical jargon or language. I completely agree. It definitely, being able to do that is a form of privilege in terms of seeking um, healthcare. Because as a young woman with health issues, you can already feel like you're more invisible and it's harder to get care sometimes. But the more levels of oppression or where you're minority or where you're not privileged, the more invisible you can become and the harder it can be to access that care. And that is something that I feel like needs to change in society as a whole and in the medical system. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like sure. people with chronic illnesses deserve, like, an honorary degree, like a medical degree or something. <laughs> nice. <laughs> because you guys just, like, there is, like, the amount of research, like, I've seen Carissa do this, and, like, Olivia, you were just basically saying this, like, the amount of research that you guys do, the amount of charts that I've had Carissa send me, that's literally just like, here are my health issues. This I connects made a new to one this. recently. Huh? I made a new one recently. Okay. <laughs> there you go. I've seen like 21 <laughs> different charts that Carissa has made. And it's just like, here's my issues. And this is how they connect. And they're like the most complex looking things. Like they're not like this little like flow chart to explain everything. They're the most complex looking things in the world. And me with the medical background, like, a, like I work in an ER. And I want to be a doctor. So like me with the little bit of medical background that I have, I'm just like, I stare at it for like at least five minutes before, okay, before going, okay, what am I looking at here? Like, oh my God, Chris is holding up another chart. <laughs> <laughs> my mom looked at this one and was like, that's a mess. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but like, I feel like you guys deserve honorary degrees. But like on that note, I feel like when you have chronic illnesses, you go one of two ways. One being I want to fix myself and I want to fix everyone else. So let me become a medical professional or what the heck is this? I want nothing to do with it. I'm going an opposite different route and I'll like dust my hands of it. Like someone help me. Great. Otherwise, I'm out. Mm hmm. Carissa also made a chart for my kidney issues before my nephrology appointment. And, okay, I looked at her chart, and she had connected my epilepsy to my kidney issues. I was like, wait, that makes sense a little bit. Like, she connected, like, my drugs to, like, my kidney issues, and if they're not being processed by my kidneys, then, like, that could affect my potassium and my hypokalemia. And I was looking at I was like give this girl a degree like <laughs> that's all that's all literally I literally she makes so many connections <laughs> right like i watch her do all of her like she was in a neurogenics class and they were talking about neurogenic disorders um specifically like speech disorders and stuff like that and i watched her like pull up all of these charts and like there was one of them that she pulled up about her like a different condition, different from like a neurogenic condition, but like a different condition. She was showing me all of her neurogenics charts, but also just like her chart. And the whole time I was literally just like, it's okay, it's okay, I understand, I understand, I understand. No, I don't. <laughs> but like the way like when I finally was just like, okay, well like explain to me what this is about. And she like walked me through the whole thing and I was just like, that makes a lot of sense. 
but how many people have made that connection in the field? Like, I don't see a lot of people that have made that connection before, but like, she's made that connection for her whole chart. Like, it started here, and this is what happens when this happens, and because of these drugs, this is what's happening, and because this is happening, this is what I think it is, and this is what's going to help. And the whole time, I'm just like, oh, excuse me? <laughs> like, it's just mind-blowing to me. You guys are, like, you guys are so freaking smart with all of, like, how, I guess, like, I'm making it out to be a good thing, and I'm, like, sure it's hell and back, and it probably isn't always that great as I'm explaining it, but, like, you guys are so smart in how you deal with your issues, how you come up with your own diagnoses, how you think this is probably what's going on, this is how it's connected, this is how we could fix this, like, it just blows my mind every single time I talk to one of you that's just, like, wow, you guys did that all on your own, and there's, like, doctors out there who don't even believe that you guys deserve care. Yeah, I yeah, made it definitely... in my uh, neurogenic communication disorders <laughs> class, so I have ones for aphasias, dementias, dysphagias, uh, motor speech disorders, <laughs> right hemisphere brain disorders, and traumatic brain injuries. <laughs> It was <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> moving on from that, Olivia, what would you say are the symptom or symptoms that impact your life the most and what ways do they impact your life? Because I feel like one thing that can get lost in the discussion of chronic illness is people hear, okay, you're short of breath, you're nauseous, you have kidney pain whatever it is, and they they can sort of picture what that means, but they can't imagine everything that that would affect in your day-to-day -day life. So can you give us some insight for you what that most symptom, most impactful symptom is and how it impacts things? Um, so my symptoms have differed from 2020 to 2021. Um, in 20, 2020, it was a lot of my GI issues which impacted me the most because I was vomiting all the time. I'd lost so much weight. I had an NG tube and I had a PEG tube and that was the majority of my 2020. But when I went into 2021, um, my kidney issues were what affected me the most and along with some POTS flares. But I mean, the UTIs, I remember texting Chris all the time, were like the worst because I'd wake up at three in the morning with a 102 fever. And like, I think doctors don't realize that like, I'm in clinicals at the moment, um, so, you know, I'm in the hospital as not an employee, but a student and not a patient for maybe like six hours some days and then plus a lab afterwards, so I'm always on my feet and I'm always walking around and it's like I'm not always laying in bed where I can rest and put a heating pad on or whatever. Like, there's times where I need the pain to be controlled and I'm standing on my feet a lot, so like I need that POTS management, and I need that pain management, or I need this kidney thing to be figured out. Um, but thankfully, my stomach stuff has really calmed down, which one organ system calms down for me, but then another one acts up. So like my stomach's being like amazing right now, but my kidneys were like, no, you can't be perfect. <laughs> we have to flare too. But my POTS has been improving a lot. Um, Infusion therapy has helped me more than anything, like I mentioned. 
Um, I got back into weightlifting um, and I'm doing good so far with like the kidney pain management um, during clinicals and my rotations and nursing, but definitely that pain has a big impact. But again, my nephrologist basically was like, well, you can take like Tylenol, but also Tylenol isn't great long-term for uh, kidney issues, but um, <laughs> you know, um, but I think that's a big impact that doctors sometimes overlook is that, yeah, we're young, but like we're going through like med school, we're going through nursing school, we have jobs, like I'm an NA, so I'm always on my feet again, like bending over, helping patients ambulate in the hallways. And it's, there's more than just like, I'm not a patient bedridden. Like I have a daily life and I have uh, activities of daily living that I need to have managed for my conditions because I actually met with my neurologist last week and he's like one of my favorite doctors. I like him a lot. He was saying like, yeah, you're having some breakthrough seizures and like we need to up your dose and have those controlled because I don't want you not doing what you love because of your epilepsy. Like I want you to be able to work your night shifts and not have seizures because your epilepsy shouldn't determine what you can and can't do as an occupation. Like if that's contradicting, then we need better treatment. And that was like, thank you. Like a doctor finally acknowledging that <laughs> claps, snaps, um, then just saying, well, you know, maybe you shouldn't go into nursing. Cause I had my very first neurologist said like, oh, well, maybe you shouldn't go into the medical field since you have epilepsy because you know sleep deprivation can set it off. And he, I wanted to go pre-med back when I was in like middle school when I got diagnosed with epilepsy. And he was like, well, I don't know if medicine is the right route since you have seizures. And I told my neurologist presently that he had said that. And he was like, you can do what you want with epilepsy. Epilepsy is not a terminal diagnosis. Like it can be controlled with anticonvulsants. It's, I just got off talk of the topic for that, but I feel like that. <laughs> All relevant. And Savani and I were calling <laughs> when you were like, he said that I shouldn't do it because of epilepsy. Like, no. Yeah. I, right. um, I had a discussion in one of my classes recently and I was talking with one person who's in the class and we were talking about how one thing that's unique about being a young adult with chronic illnesses is there are unique challenges that you face because when you're emerging into adulthood and you're trying to form your life and figure out who you are and figure out what you're going to do with your life and what career you want to pursue and what passions you have and you have this chronic illness like chilling on your shoulder the whole time it it makes it harder and it's it's different challenges than people who are older and develop chronic illnesses face because you haven't settled into your life yet like you haven't like we're all still in college Savani's getting her master's but still college-ish um <laughs> and so we're still working towards our career. We haven't gotten there yet. We aren't like comfortably in a career where we could take sick leave if we needed to. Not that we can't take time off school, but that just, it's taking time off school that makes it take longer to get to our careers. So it's a balance between not pushing too hard that you cause yourself a flare, but still making progress. And that's a hard balance for everyone to find and the consequences are just higher 
with chronic illnesses, mental and physical. No, and yeah, that's what makes sure. it I... go ahead oh i was just gonna say that that's what makes it hard is because you don't want i had to take a medical leave when i was a sophomore in college and i mean yeah it's what needed to happen because i was having so many surgeries but also everyone else is in college and you're like in a hospital bed or like you're at home like it's carissa knows all how depressed i was when i was like on a medical leave even though it's what needed to happen and then again it just pushes you back farther and then you can't like get your degree with the rest of like your class or people your age so like right now i'm 21 and like some of my classmates are like 19 so it's like a little age difference but and that's because I have to take medical leave, but I mean, also it needs to happen sometimes and everyone goes at their own pace. So you kind of have to accept that things will happen just at your own pace, especially with chronic illness. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with that. Yeah. I've had conversations with my boyfriend about that too. And lots of my friends, like it is, it is hard. And what's interesting is with the pandemic, more people are realizing that sort of because there's more people now that like had to take time off during the pandemic because they couldn't manage doing school with the pandemic. And it's ironic because now there's sort of more people that are in a similar boat because I've taken two medical leaves of absences. And like, I was talking to my mom the other day and I'm like, I think I should be able to graduate in spring of 2022. Like I should only have to take like two to three classes per term next year this will be great. And my mom just looked at me and she goes, I hate to say it, honey, but knock on wood. <laughs> I was like, you're not wrong, but ouch. <laughs> but I think it is, it is hard to accept that it's, um, everyone goes at their own pace. And what was hard for me too, was I knew it wasn't the material of the classes that I was taking that was too hard, or like I couldn't handle college life or something like that. It was just my body would not cooperate. And my mom and I were talking about that too, how you have to look at the whole story. Because if you look at sparse details, you could say that I am a 21-year-old who lives at home with her parents, has switched schools and switched majors, and is about a year behind her peers. But then you add in that I was lifelighted three times and my airways collapsed like seven, eight, something like that times, and I have to get weekly infusions, and the more you add into that story and that narrative, all of which is true, the more it's like, okay, that makes sense, but it can be hard in your own brain sometimes to remember it's okay, everybody goes at their own pace, you'll get to where you're going to get eventually. Yeah, um, I think, like, the one thing that I'd like to add on to that is also just, like, it's hard when people don't know your story or understand your story too. Cause like, like Carissa said, like if you look at the sparse details of all of our stories, like you look at three 21 year old females who sometimes like ha have had in previously difficulty with school or having to have taken time off. And it's like, well, why you guys look healthy, you guys like, or like, you know, they'll make some assumption about how we look or how our narrative looks like, but it's like, in all honesty, 
Like we've all had our own struggles and it sucks when people can't understand those struggles too. I occasionally flash people my tube when they start saying things like that and then it just makes people uncomfortable, but it gets yeah. the point across that there are things that you can't see. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And I guess like, I sort of bring this up because it's a nice segue into the one question that I am super curious about actually. And it's how has having like multiple chronic illnesses impacted your non-physical health aspects of your life, like your relationships or finding supportive friends or like what you do with the UT inclusion and everything like that? Um, I think the biggest aspect that you don't think of when you're younger is how it'll affect intimate relationships, um, not only friendships, because, you know, when I was younger, teenager, um, when I was in high school, it was more friendships that were affected rather than dating. Um, I lost a lot of friends because I couldn't keep up with them. Um, when I first got diagnosed with EDS, I couldn't walk a lot, like I couldn't do a lot of things. I was always tired. I was always taking naps during the day because I was get so, get so fatigued. I couldn't stay up late at night, like I couldn't spend the night places. And I lost a lot of friends because I couldn't keep up with normal teenage activities. Um, but then later on, when I got into college, um, intimate relationships were a big thing. I had a relationship from when I was a senior in high school until um, the beginning of my junior year of college. And um, during that relationship, it was a lot of me being in the hospital. Um, so it was kind of hard because I always felt bad that I was in the hospital and I was always sick and I had a feeding tube. And, you know, I was like, wow, I'm not gonna, when that, that relationship ended, I was like, I'm never gonna find someone that um, accepts me being so sick all the time and having a feeding tube, like that's not your usual expectation for a 21-year-old to have a feeding tube before like being hooked up to an infusion sometimes, constantly at doctor's appointments, etc. Um, but I think it's, I think people are more open now, I think, to like diversity and you having your own personal issues because people have issues themselves too that everyone hides. Like I feel like our generation especially, like, a lot of us are chronically ill, and, like, we don't realize it because everyone looks normal or acts normal, but I, go ahead, Chris. <laughs> I completely agree with that, and I was just thinking about, I've given talks about chronic illness before, and I've had people come up to me afterwards and be like, thank you so much for sharing, like, I thought I was alone, nobody else like I've never met somebody else my own age who has chronic illnesses too and the number of people that have come up to me and said that I'm like if you turned around and talked to your neighbor you would probably meet someone but people sometimes have right. trouble opening up about that and I do think sort of the more confidently you can open up about it and be like this is me and if you can't deal with that that's okay but this is my life and this is a part of who I am other people seem more okay with it if you're not acting like it's taboo too is what I found right and if they're not okay with you having chronic illness then they're probably not you know a good fit for your life like if they're going to say oh well I don't want to be your girlfriend because or I don't want to be your boyfriend girlfriend if you have epilepsy or you're in the hospital sometimes or you have a port like if someone is concerned that you have a port or any medical device 
and that's why they don't want to date you or be friends with you, then maybe that's your sign that they're not the best for you in general, even if you weren't chronically ill. And that's what I've learned. I second that completely. I 100% agree. Like, I think um, this comes down to, like, friendships, too, because I'm not in a romantic relationship at the moment. So, um, like, I, I think it comes down to, like, friendships, too. And I think Carissa and I were talking about this pretty recently. And it's, like, never feel bad about your own medical issues. Like, they're not something that you brought on to yourself. These are something that happens to you. And if you, you know, you don't need to feel guilty about the fact that you put your friends or your significant others in a position where they have to help deal with it. Like, that's not, you didn't make that choice to have that medical illness or that chronic illness. That is not your choice. And you should never have to feel guilty about the fact that someone else is helping you deal with that. They've made that choice to be in your life and love you no matter what's going on. And like the best way to, in a way, respect that choice is to not feel guilty about what you put them through because like they're there to love you for who you are, not because they pity you or they have sympathy or something like that. They're just there to help you. I saw a quote one time that I really liked that seems applicable here, and it said that um, having an illness, whether it's physical or mental illness, is a burden that you have to deal with, but having that burden does not make you a burden. It just means that sometimes you need more help to deal with that because it is something that you have to deal with on a daily basis. And I really like that, and I completely agree in every type of relationship. I feel like one thing that I feel like for me chronic illness has done is it's shown me who really wants to be in my life and who my real friends are and who my support system is because it's the ones who are there for you not just during the good times but during the bad times too and that doesn't mean we all have sort of friends for different occasions like there are friends that you see to go get coffee with or friends that you see to go on adventures with but maybe you aren't as close with them so they aren't there but then there's like your friends that become family and your significant others and those are the ones that you want to be there and you want to accept all parts of you and be able to be there and we joke frequently that my friends that have been there with me on medical misadventures as we like to call them because that sounds better than anything else you can call them um <laughs> it has brought us closer because they've then seen what that really looks like and Savani's been there with me before <laughs> and it's not a fun time but then you can laugh about it later and it, it does bring you closer 100% and it's like it's one of those occasions where you're just like you get it really hits you how difficult it is for them to live their day-to-day -day life and it gives like as a friend it gives you the insight of what you need to help support them in ways that maybe you didn't think you needed to support them previously. Like Carissa texts me all the time now, like not all the time, but whenever she has to go to the ER, she always texts me and she's always just like, hey, this is a thing. <laughs> I, I remember calling you when um, I had the air embolism and you were, I was like, hey, which ER are you scribing at today? And you're like, why? <laughs> like, well, I'm heading there in an ambulance. So I just thought I'd ask. And it's that just was like the first time my boyfriend was there with me when something went wrong too. And he was he handled it quite well. 
That was the first time he'd ever seen an ambulance called for someone that he cared about. Yeah. And they also showed up with like six EMTs. And I'm like, this was really overkill, guys. Like, can I just go home instead? <laughs> and they were like, no. No. They we're also in hazmat suits no. because it's COVID. So that did not help the situation that there's like six grown men in a tiny infusion room. Yeah, but it was just like, you know, Chris's boyfriend and I are friends too. And so I remember like her calling me. She texted me first and I'd just gotten off shift. So I was just like, I called her and I was just like, um, excuse me, what? But I, like, I knew that she had been at an infusion and her boyfriend had been present. So I remember just being, like, I got off the phone with her and I was just, like, well, I need to go home because I have something else to do. But I got off the phone with her and then I immediately texted her boyfriend being, like, hey, are you okay? Because I know how hard this is. So are you okay? But it's just, like, it gives us such insight. It gives us, like, new things that maybe we didn't consider that we had to do. Like, Chris and I joke that every single time she gets admitted, I get to visit her at least once. (laughs) And so it's just like, since I've known her every single time she's been admitted, I've seen her at least once. (laughs) And it's just like, you know, it sounds like something we do for fun, but it's literally just me checking in, me bringing a little bit of normalcy to her life if that's what she needs at that time. Also, can we have a moment to you have to make your life fun sort of right like it's your life so you have to sort of romanticize your own life so even if you're in the hospital sometimes you're so sick that you can't do anything but that doesn't mean that you can't still have small moments of joy like where people come visit you and you play cards together and all my friends now joke because playing cards is a big thing that I like to do my friends always joke when they come like play cards with me and they're like don't think just because you're in the hospital or just because you're getting an infusion, I'm going to go easy on you. Like, no, this is my chance to win. <laughs> my yeah. boyfriend says that a lot. He's like, don't think I'm going to let you win just because you, uh, you're you here. Yeah. And I remember my one friend saying that after I got my feeding tube placed. He's like, oh, no, I'm not letting you win just because you're in the hospital. And so it's it's finding, for me, it's finding that little bit of humor and that little bit of, like, happiness, even in the times when it's really hard, is really helpful for me. And one thing that I feel like is interesting is I feel like that's normalized in pediatric medicine. Like, when you see a pediatric physician, they're like, they're like, yes, like, like, the pediatric hospitals, you know, they have, the one I stayed at had, like, a pinball machine and a movie theater in it, and I was like, this is great. But in adult hospitals, there's sort of this expectation that you play into the sick role if you're in the hospital and that you act sick if you are sick. Yeah. It's like, no, I don't, like, yeah, I'm sick, but I don't want that to be my whole identity, so I'm still gonna go have my fun and watch my Netflix show and whatever else I can do in that moment. Yeah, I agree. It's like, Pediatric has um, child life specialists, and we don't have adult life specialists. Like, why don't we have someone coming around giving us puzzles yes. and coloring books and, and bubbles? <laughs> I love bubbles. Right. I love bubbles in the basket in the hospital one year. <laughs> Literally, it's like, oh. Anyway, last question that oh, we would God. like. To- Sorry. The hospital dogs that would come around. Oh, yeah, yeah. Pet you, or you'd pet them, not they would pet you. That's weird. Um, (laughs) The dogs back. (laughs) 
I like having those dogs. Yeah, they're adorable. Sometimes we still have them at like some of the ears they work at where there'll just be like this majestic looking husky that comes around in the halls and you're just like, oh my God. <laughs> anyway, last question, transitioning to our last question is, what has your experience been with advocacy in like a medical setting, on a personal scale, and like on a bigger stage or to an audience? like raising awareness and education in any sort of setting. What has your experience been with advocacy? I think there's two different aspects for me since I am a nursing and I'm a patient. So I think there's been advocate roles in both of those positions for me. Um, as a patient, um, I would say my mom too was a big advocate for me when I was younger because I think there's like a mom instinct when your kid is sick that they just know they're like something is wrong like she is not imagining this like I know there's something wrong and so my mom was like my biggest advocate when I was little and I think I kind of grew off of that when I was older because she was always the one that stood up to doctors like no like there's something wrong like this isn't anxiety this isn't depression like anxiety might be caused by the chronic illness but it is not the cause of their chronic illness. And so then I kind of took that role on as I got older um, and turned 18 and moved out of the house and everything. Um, I kind of had to advocate for myself like during doctor's appointments if they're like, oh, well, nothing looks wrong. Like you look fine. I'm like, well, maybe not. Like maybe we should try this or do this. And again, you kind of have to realize doctors are humans too. Like I think some people are scared to talk like up to doctors because they just don't want to speak up but you kind of have to think like they're doc they're humans too like they're open to ideas or they should be open to ideas by you um and then as like nursing in a nursing profession um we had a couple of patients that i had to advocate for because i worked and first i worked in like a pacu type unit all of our patients would come from surgery so they all be sleeping um post anesthesia and we had this one patient who had had a laparoscopy and a hysterectomy and she was just in so much pain because like sitting up from like an abdominal surgery you know as you know is like very painful because you don't realize how much you use your abdomen when you're moving side to side sitting up laying down and she just could not get up and then obviously your bowels and your bladder are asleep right when you get after like anesthesia or a surgery and you also haven't eaten or drank anything and she was like I really need to try and go to the bathroom but I can't stand up and she was in so much pain and I had told one of the other NAs like hey I'm gonna help this patient get up and like ambulate and go to the bathroom and she's like why why would you need to do that like she can do it on her own and I was like, no, this patient really needs help. Like, she needs help to the bathroom. And she, her wife was with her at the time. And her wife was like, I mean, I could help her, but I just don't feel comfortable. Like, if she fell or something happened, like, I don't know how to assist a patient. Like, we're trained how to assist a patient in pain and post-anesthesia. And it's just things like that in a medical setting where you have to speak up. Or I've had friends who've had to speak up to doctors even as a nursing student, which can be terrifying and say like, hey, this patient is not okay, like not good. And I mean, that's always scary, but it's a big thing that you have to build. I think over years, it's not something that just comes, at least it didn't come natural for me. I had to really like 
work on it, work on it, and try not to be afraid to speak up. Because again, it's a scary thing, but in all aspects, especially when you work in medicine, like even when you said you were a medical scribe and you were like, what? <laughs> like, no. <laughs> but, and I know Carissa does a whole ton of advocating for herself. So, and I feel like Carissa is like the queen of advocacy. <laughs> Like, I, literally. she's my advocacy motivation. <laughs> literally, if I needed someone to talk to, like, a doctor or even, like, the government on my behalf, it would be Carissa. It wouldn't <laughs> be my parents, it would be Carissa. The government. <laughs> like, anything for any sort of issue. If, some, if I needed someone on my behalf, like, speaking on my behalf, it would have to be Carissa. It would take her, like, five minutes to get her bearings, and then she would just, like, ram into these people just being like no this is what you need to do like this is what I think is happening like she just is top level I love Carissa I have like I've never I don't think ever let my like fangirl let out about this way I'm just like please help me I'm a fangirl give me, for the, give me the prompt and uh like 20 minutes to research and I got you just you gotta have enough time to make the chart and then we're good you should start charging people, like, by the hour for, like, Carissa's advocate. She'll come with you. She'll be your lawyer. <laughs> charge by the hour. <laughs> I don't have the degrees, but I'll show up for you with a charge. No need for a degree. No need. <laughs> and a lot of freaking research. A chart and a lot of freaking research. Oh, yeah. She'll provide charts. She'll, <laughs> <laughs> So she's like, whenever she's like talking about her doctor, she'll be like, oh yeah, I had like this like folder full of like articles that I took to them. And she'll like, she, whenever she talks about folders, she's always talking about like binder size folders. And I have she's an like, entire box in my bedroom with like medical records and research articles that I've printed out <laughs> that we organized about Sjogren's by system. <laughs> so they're color coordinated by binder clips. There you go. Like, it doesn't get better than this. <laughs> we have to write a research paper in one of my classes, and I was like, ooh, I could write it on Sjogren's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I think that is all that we have time for. We have so many questions for Olivia, but, like, that's the only ones that we currently have time for. So, um, We'll try and wrap it up at this point. Thank you so much, Olivia, for joining us. We absolutely love, love, loved interviewing you. For, a second. for the second time. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we absolutely loved interviewing you. And thank you so much for providing us with insight and telling your story. Yep, thank you, guys. Yeah. Hold on, please. Okay. Yes, thank you so much for um, interviewing us. Or us interviewing us? You. We okay. <laughs> Rewind. Let's try that again. Forte today. Um, thank you for allowing us to interview you a second time due to the technical difficulties, and we have thoroughly enjoyed both times. Yeah, 100%. So, I guess we should, like, jump into our outro. So, if you guys haven't gotten your kidney shirts yet, yet please contact us because i feel like everyone should have gotten them yes i'm pretty sure everyone should have gotten them and i haven't received any emails saying people didn't so i'm hoping that yeah 
Yeah, 100%. Um, if you guys did get the kidney shirts, please send us pictures. We love seeing them. Um, the kidney awareness shirts were also, like, inspired by Olivia, so thank you for inspiring us to have cute, fun merch. <laughs> thank you. My kidneys. No, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um... We have an Instagram, which is Organs, Tissues, and Other Issues. We also have a Gmail at Organs, Tissues, and Other Issues at gmail.com. Please contact us. We love hearing from you. We love to talk about the podcast. We love to talk about chronic illnesses. We'll talk about support systems. We'll talk to you about everything and anything. We just love to hear your guys' ideas about what we should do next for the podcast, but also just like ideas or like thoughts about our previous episodes. We love talking to all of you, so please contact us. If you know us personally, we are more than happy to talk via our Instagrams, our Snapchats, our phone numbers, whatever it is, uh, reach out to us. We absolutely love you guys. We love hearing from you. We love talking to you. We love hearing your thoughts, questions, and concerns. 100%. So please feel free to reach out to us. Uh, we know support systems are even more crucial during the pandemic, and we are happy to be a part of your virtual support system. 100%. All right. I think that wraps it up for today. So we will talk to you guys next time. Bye. Bye.